The last time I heard that song was uh, on Thursday, and uh, it was at uh, Zach Kieser's funeral. And it was a great reminder, and it was a great day to celebrate uh, Zach's life. Zach lost his life at 24 years old, and uh, we got a chance to celebrate that here and uh, to sing that song with his family, his friends, and um, they sang it with gusto because they believe it with all their heart. And when you, if you get to that place where someone dear to you passes from this earth, I recommend finding that hymn and begging God to let it be you in the midst of that journey. And that was the Keezers. Keep praying for them. Uh, um, our lives start to go back to normal, right? You know, their lives have a new normal. And it's not an easy one along the way. All right, uh, a couple, a little bit of family business before um, the uh, preaching thing. So um, I wanted to announce to you this morning, if you're a member of our church, uh, we have two men to present to our church family as potential elders who will be leading and guiding this ministry. Uh, one of them is Tom Clothier that, and his wife Diana there. And um, the second one is Andy Oplinger. If you'll put that one up, there's Andy. He's not the tall one on the right. That's his son, Wes. Andy's the shorter guy. Um, Though, Go to the next slide, if you would. Um, so here's how it works. Um, you get a chance to ask them any question you want. So you can submit those in writing. They will answer those in person during the ABF hours uh, in the weeks to come. Troy, what's the date on that? July 23rd. July 23rd, they'll be answering those questions. So you have this week and next week to submit questions. Then they will take turns answering those questions. If everything goes well there, um, they will then be brought, their names will be brought before you as a church family. It is not a vote, it is a confirmation. And you say yes or no to either one of them, both of them. And then uh, we do ask you to sign your name to that. Let me tell you why we do that. And you go, well, this is America. I don't have to sign my name. This is Headwaters, and yes, you do. But we do it for a a real reason, and the reason is this. Um, They have to get 100% confirmation to be an elder in our church. And you go, no one gets, his wife won't even vote for him. Are you kidding? How is he gonna get 100% confirmation? And the reason we ask you to sign is maybe you know something we don't know about these two men. And and they could get 99% of the vote and it could be wrong because you know something that we somehow didn't know or don't discover, maybe they're a scoundrel on how they do business and we didn't get that. That one no vote could prevent them from becoming an elder in our church. So you sign your name, we will follow up with you and say, what do you know that we don't know? I'll give you an example. Years ago, this dear little gal, she voted no to the guy. And I go, oh, what, what do you, well, he just has a lot of kids. I didn't think he'd have time. That was her reason for voting no. That's not bad advice, but it's not necessarily a biblical reason why he shouldn't be an elder, right? 
And if you have a good biblical reason why one of these two men shouldn't be elders, then we don't want them to be elders. However, if the reasons given are not biblical reasons to keep them from, then we need godly, strong, courageous men to lead this ministry and to shepherd this flock. So we bring these two men before you. I hope you'll participate in that process. If it's new to you, we understand it. We kind of made up this process uh, for us, and um, I hope you'll participate in that. Now, um, if you got, did did y'all get notes coming in? Three of you. Okay, thank you for taking those. Um, Let me tell you what's going on today. Um, Last summer, Um, we did a series of messages, or actually last year, we did a series of messages on the book of Judges. You may remember that lovely book and how awful it was at the end. Uh, Anyhow, prior to that, uh, we decided what we would do is do a a backfill of the history leading up to the Judges. Um, And so last summer, did a series where I just took one book of the Bible every Sunday, and so I taught Genesis one week, Exodus the next week. Leviticus, what's the next one? Numbers, thank you. I just thought I'd see if y'all were still with me. And then uh, Deuteronomy and Joshua, and then we got the Judges. And um, Luke and I were just sitting around talking, saying, well, you know what, what should we do next? And we we got to thinking, um, wouldn't it be interesting to finish off the history of the Old Testament and fill in the rest of the blanks? And so what we want to do is pick up with 1 Samuel and carry it through uh, Esther, which actually Ezra is more chronologically the last book of the Old Testament, but Esther as far as the canonical view of the books. And when we do that, we will have covered the entire history of the Christian faith in the Old Testament. We will then follow that up with a series out of the book of Hebrews, which is the New Testament interpretation of what's going on in the Old Testament and showing that what God did through Jesus was better than everything that happened previously in Israel, better than Moses, better than angels, better than the sacrificial system. We could go on and on and on. And here's Jesus, and he's going to be amazing, and the book of Hebrews is going to do that. I said, oh, cool. So so we're thinking, well, you know what? We've already done this. And I said, "I'll I'll do Genesis through Ruth in one message. And then we'll be right on schedule because it's really good. And Luke goes, yeah, yeah, have a good time with that. That'll be really great. And um, so that was my goal. And I sat down and it was, honest, it was a bit of a busy week. And I didn't really get to focus much till Friday on this. And I sat down and I started cranking. I thought, oh, this is good stuff. I can't wait to present this, da, da, da. And I thought, oh, this is a lot of stuff, and I'll never get through this. I hope people packed a bag, you know, because we're going to be. So here's my disclaimer. On, the, on your notes on the front side will be all that I cover today. So if you need to doodle or you want to take more notes from the front and forget about the back, and then I, I just turn this one-weeker into a two-weeker. We'll see if next week I turn a two-weeker into a three-weeker. I make no guarantees what's going to happen. I just wanted to tell you, I know I'm not going to cover everything that I prepared because I left half of it at home, so I wouldn't even try, okay? But I wanted to talk about the glory of God in creation today. And to be honest with you, as I started digging in this again, I couldn't go too fast. And so I want to take the first 11 chapters of Genesis 
And I want to talk to you about what we see in creation and how it introduces us to the glory of the Creator. And I, I hope that it will be helpful to your walk. I am convinced that there's a reason why the Lord brought you here today, and He wants you to see His glory and to, to be amazed by Him. And that's what I see, uh, frankly, in the creation story. So if you don't mind, I'd like to pray, and then uh, I'm going to step on the gas. I'm going to cover a lot of stuff. Are you ready? Father, help us to see you first and foremost. May the doubter and the debater and the questioner find a few answers today. And may you solidify our souls among ourselves about how great you are. And how when we look to the heavens, we see your glory. Because the heavens declare it to us. When we look around, we see your glory because all you've created has declared it to us. Father, when we look in the mirror, we see your glory. For your brilliance is on display everywhere. Help us to not miss that out of our own arrogance. Help us to not miss that out of skepticism. And I pray that you would massage our hearts toward your magnificence today. Please help me to speak well on your behalf. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, are you ready? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. If you uh, need a, if you're not used to being around the Bible, I can really help you with this one. It's page 1. Okay, we're going to start on page 1. Um, and, and I actually, when I wrote the whole thing, I think I made it all the way to Revelation when I was done. That's why I'm only doing part of this thing today. I need to get going. So page one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible begins with God's existence. Um, it does not make a case for his existence. It just says that he is there. What you have in your lap in that book is God's revelation about himself. Here's what I can tell you about the Bible and what it reveals. It reveals everything that you need to know about God. It does not reveal everything there is to know about God. Let me say that again. It reveals everything you need to know about God. It does not reveal everything there is to know about God. He is the author of this book. He is the inspirer of this book. He gave it for a specific purpose so that you could know him. He is your creator. Wouldn't it be great if you had a, a, an owner's manual from the creator of how to do life? Um, now my wife Amy was talking to one of our relatives this week, and she's a younger girl. She says, I just wish there was a manual telling you how to live. To my wife, the pastor's wife. And Amy very gently said, well, there really is. You know, when you have someone who's not a believer in those things, you go, well, there really is. Yeah, but I just wish they would. Everything you need to know. And what happens is, God has told you everything you need to know, and you focus on the things he didn't tell you. Well, I wished he'd have told me this, and I wished he'd have told me that. Everything you need to know about him is right here. It is not everything you could know, but it is everything you need to know. Now, so the Bible begins with in the beginning God. 
you'll notice that it says that he's a creator, that he created the heavens and the earth. And so his glory is revealed through the almightiness of his creation. In other words, there is unparalleled power that is put on display in Genesis chapter 1 that has never been seen before because it couldn't be seen before. That unparalleled power is revealed to us so that we can know the one who has the power. And so it tells us what he made. So this is point A, what he made. We're already in point B. I'm still on A. So we're on what he made. Do you know what he made in Genesis chapter 1? You ready? Everything. He made everything. He didn't make some things. He made all things. He made these by his strength. There are, in verse 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, and 26, in chapter 1, and he said, and it was so. Have you ever been able to do that? Have you ever been able to, I said, and it was so. No. I would never have to mow my lawn again if I could do that. I would just say, don't grow. Stay perfectly flat. There shall be no dandelions. And I'm going to drink my tea on my porch, and I'm going to glory in your beauty. Don't move an inch, right? I, 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 I have other things I'd rather do than mow my grass. <clears throat> That's why I pay someone to put fertilizer on it so I can mow it more times. Have you thought about that? Anyhow, I got, if I get caught up, and don't let me get caught up. Just say, so he did it with power. He spoke and it was so. He did it with intelligence. Chapter 1 reveals he calls things by their names. He makes them. He forms them. As you go through the chapter, God's uh, uh, amazing intelligence is on display for all of us. And we, over the years, look at this incredible chapter and go, wow, I'm trying to figure it all out. I get it. He puts it on display. But let me say this. In Genesis chapter 1, there are no accidents. In Genesis chapter 1, there's just brilliance. And he puts his brilliance on display, and he says, here's what I do when I speak. Wouldn't it be something if he had the power to speak and not the intelligence to do good things with what he speaks. The third thing I notice in the passage is he does it with purpose. Seven times, verse 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, and in verse 31, he says it is good. In fact, in verse 31, when he's finished with the creation, he says it is very good. And by that I know this. God is making a moral statement about everything he made, and he makes a testament to the Creator that it is glorious. So think about it. In Genesis chapter 1, God made everything by his power, with intelligence, and for a purpose. That's what you get out of the first chapter of the Bible. That's amazing. Now, as we think about that, he reveals more about his relationship to that which he created. So chapter 2, 
verse 15. So the Lord took the man, the man he created, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man and said, You may surely eat of every tree of the Garden of Eden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. What he makes, he rules. So when God created something, as the creator of all things, he has the right then to determine what the rules of engagement are with what he's made. This is how things work. And so God puts on display and lets us understand, I have made all these things. They are amazing. They are very good. And here are the rules of engagement for the things that I've made. And so he commands. This is the first law in the universe. This is the first statement of something is right and wrong. Ethics were born in Genesis chapter 2, where God says, you may do this and you may not do that. And the creator is the one who decided what was right and what was wrong. Now let me hit pause for my Genesis thing and let me bring it fast forward all the way to today our great problem in our society today is we don't believe what i just said in fact our great problem in society today is that we are all seeking my truth and i'm going to live by what my truth is and I'm going to decide how I behave based on what I believe truth to be. Right? And so we, we could go in this whole room and you say, well, I'm glad that works for you. That doesn't work. This is my truth. But you know what the Bible's telling us here? That our Creator has His truth. And His truth can guide us into all truth. If you pursue only your own truth, you're going to get in trouble. We'll see that in a second. But what God has made, he rules. And his truth is the only truth. Later on, he'll give a top ten list of his truth. You know, you all seem to be struggling with my truth. Let me give you a list of things. Maybe you can, you know, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll write them in stone for you. That way, you, you kind of won't forget what they are. Boom, 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 boom. Ten commandments, no other gods. You know, love your, 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 your husband and wife. Kids, obey your parents. Don't steal stuff. Stop lying. You know, we could go on and on. Here's the truth. He makes the rules. Later, he's going to say, love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to go, oh, my goodness, that's amazing. You know what else he says? Don't get drunk. Don't divorce your spouse. He, he's going to tell you to stop fornicating. What? How dare you? He's giving you the directive of his created order. He made it, you guys. He formed it. He fashioned it. He spoke it. And he certainly has the right to tell us how it works. Um, part of that creation order was the fact that people don't always follow what he says, which is Genesis chapter 3. 
And so creation rebels and says, well, I don't feel like following your rules. And so in chapter 3, the serpent is more crafty. Verse 1, he says to the woman, did God actually say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? It was a clever little question, wasn't it? Did he actually say you couldn't? No, I can eat anywhere I want except for that one. Oh, no, we can eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it, she lied, uh, lest you die. God never said you couldn't touch it. You can carve your initials. A loves E. Put it right there on the tree. Um, don't eat from it. And the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, he lied. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened, he told the truth, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the difficulty with the deceiver. He wraps lies in the truth and makes it very confusing to figure out. In this instance, they take and do exactly what God told them to do, not to do. Verse 6, that she saw the tree was good. It was a delight. It was to be desired. She took, she ate, gave it to her husband, and he ate. That's the one rule. Don't do that. And even Adam led all of us down a path that goes something like this. How dare you tell me what to do? How dare you, God, put boundaries on my sexual expression? I'll do whatever I please. How dare you tell me how to spend my Friday nights? If I want to get gassed, I'll get gassed, right? How dare you tell me that I can't steal my neighbor's car? I like it. I'll do whatever I get the idea. And at the moment Adam and Eve plunged themselves into where they were going and what they decided they would do and they would ignore their creator's directive, the rules of engagement changed. And so God now judges what he made. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. Verse uh, 17, and to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife. Uh, the verse doesn't stop there, men. You know, it doesn't mean you should never listen to the voice of your wife, okay? Anyhow, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. So the creator of all things, who is the ruler of all things, when its creation breaks the rules that the creator has set, the creator now becomes the judge of what is moral and what is immoral, of what is condemnable and what is applaudable. This is in the earliest pages of the Bible as we understand who God is. Now, Adam and Eve go their way, do their thing, and um, we are left on the sidelines going, whoa, that was bad. 
It gets worse in chapter 4, where their sons are born, and Cain rises up and kills his brother, and we have the first murder in the first four chapters of the Bible. Here's the first murder, and homicide is born. And NCIS was on the scene to figure it out, right? We need, we need a crime investigative agency all of a sudden. We're only in chapter 4. And as soon as the creation rebels against its creator, it starts to spiral downward. More on that in a minute. Now, so he creates and what he creates, he directs, uh, excuse me, what he creates, he rules, and what he creates, he judges, and what he made, he also directs. The Bible does not portray the creator of all things as passively sitting by after he made things, going, oh, I wonder how things are going to work out down there. Sure going to be interesting. I'm going to get a, 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 a little latte here, sit on, the, on my uh, rocker up here in heaven and watch things unfold. This creator is involved. This creator is observant. This creator cares about what he made. I'm going to show you why it's so important to him in just a minute. But what he made, he directs. So we go to chapter 12 of Genesis. And when we get there, the Lord God says to Abram, go to the country, your kindred, your father's house. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those. God's active here, isn't he? He interjects himself into what he has made. Again, he is not a passive observer. He is a participant. Go to chapter 17 and just watch him in the first eight verses as he again speaks from Abram and he's 99 years old it's been 25 years or so or or no excuse me and he's, he's going to make him the father of many nations and Abram falls on his face and says my covenant is with you and then you, you and you shall be the the father of a multitude of nations no longer will you be Abraham but your name shall be Abraham for I have made you the Father, I will make you fruitful, I will make you in the nations, verse 7, I will establish my covenant, I will give you, verse 8, I will be there, bang, 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 and God speaks to Abraham, and he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. What I have made, I will direct. Abraham, don't give up on me. I'm involved in this process. So, what do we learn about God in the first pages of the Bible? We learn that He is almighty. There is none like Him. He is powerful. He can speak and it happens. We learn that He is all-knowing. There's nothing that is escaping his sight. He is observant of our secret ways, right? Eve didn't call him over and say, Hey, Lord, watch me pick this whatever it was. It was not a grapefruit. We know it was not a grapefruit. No one could be tempted with a grapefruit. They would look at the grapefruit and go, oh, that, that thing's disgusting. We're not eating that. No, it was desirable to the eyes. It was pleasing. Whatever it was, she didn't, 
let's see if we can pull this off without that God. And then they go hide. Think, no, you guys, he is all-knowing. And you know what else we find out? He really cares. And so what he made, he directs. In other words, God is above all that he's made, and he has made everything, and his glory is on display through everything that he has made. If, we just, if that's all we knew about him in the Bible, we would stop here and go, that's unbelievable. He could speak and it's so. He, he, he has the right to tell us how to live. He cares enough to interject himself. Oh, what kind of God is this? Now, um, I can hardly address these first chapters without dealing with a little bit of the controversy uh, that goes in here. I brought a computer. I hope you have fasted for me. I am a legendary uh, pathetic. Um, the screen did come up, and it is functioning, yes. Um, how, how long ago did all this happen? That has become the question out of these first chapters. Uh, I, it, it's a little bit unfortunate that that's become the focus of all of it. Uh, but that being true, I, I googled, how old is the earth? Thought I've learned a few things. And um, what's the name of this magazine? Uh, not, a popular science. How old is the earth? And the answer is, it's surprisingly tough question to answer. Okay. I agree. Let me read to you what popular science... This is from January 22nd, 2023. I am current. Okay, I'm not pulling old stuff here. This is new stuff. How old is the earth? It may seem like a simple question to answer. The typical ballpark estimate is that our planet is around 4.5 billion years old. The closer uh, planetary scientists look, the squishier the story gets. Okay? Nuances about how our planet formed could shift the age of the Earth by a half a billion years or so. And, and so the scientists are saying, it's, it's 4.5 billion years, give or take 500,000 years or so. Okay. Let's cut them some slack. This isn't easy. Let's say, oh, I get that. That's not easy. The age is easy to talk about, but it becomes more and more complex as you zoom in, says geology professor Thomas Lapin, who chairs the University of Houston's Earth and Atmospheric Science Department. As scientists, we, uh, as scientists have sought to determine more precise measurements of the Earth's age, they've had to grapple with the specifics of how our planet came to be. Now we're talking. Where did it come from? No, it's not working. 
Oh, you dog computer. There it went. Do you think the creator's in, in control of computers? That's the real question. What is happening here? When you're born, it's an instant in time, Lapin explains. But planetary formation is a process that takes deep time, millions of years, to assign an age to Earth. Astrophysicists, planetary scientists, and geologists have determined which point in the process could be considered Earth's birth. Those are pretty important smart folks, right? I had a hard time pronouncing their titles. That's a lot of syllables for a simple person like me. So when was the earth born? Quotation marks, there's quotation marks, not mine. About, here we go, here's how it happened. About 4.6 billion years ago, gas and dust swirled in orbit around the newly formed sun. Okay? Over the first millions of years of the solar system, particles collided and merged into asteroids and the seeds of planets. Those space rocks kept smashing into one another, some growing larger and larger, shaping the solar system as we see it today. That's amazing. But planets aren't simply big rock piles. They amass material. These celestial bodies also differentiate into layers of a core, mantle, and crust, at least in the case of Earth and other terrestrial planets. Accretion and differentiation take time, likely in the order of tens of millions of years. Some might consider a point in that stage of the Earth's formation to be our planet's birth. But Lapin says he thinks of it as Earth's conception. That's clever. And birth came later when a cataclysmic event also formed the moon. Wait a minute. Come on. There it goes. It might be the Wi-Fi. According to, here we go. I read all that to read this. Y'all okay so far? Deep breath. I know I'm taking them. I am so out of my domain here. Oh, that's why I wanted to read it to you. I, yeah, anyhow. According to widely accepted giant impact theory. Remember those three words. Giant impact theory. During the chaos of the early years of our solar system, the proto-Earth collided with another small body about the size of Mars. When the two slammed together, the debris coalesced into the moon in orbit around the Earth. Okay. The impact also is thought to have essentially reset the materials that made up the planet, Lapin says. And at the time, a thick magma ocean may have covered Proto-Earth, notice the May, upon the powerful <coughs> excuse me, collision, the material of both bodies mixed together and coalesced into the planet and moon system that we know today. May is no longer there, now it's real. Evidence for such a reset comes from both terrestrial and lunar rocks that contain identical forms of oxygen. 
Lapin explains that proto-Earth was in all likelihood destroyed or changed in the composition. In my mind, the Earth wasn't the Earth as we know it until the moon-forming event. If this event marked our planet's birth, Earth would be somewhere between 4.4 billion and 4.52 billion years old. End of debate. Popular science. Or you could believe Genesis. And I said kind of sarcastically a couple weeks ago, and I, I didn't even know that I was even close to true, that, that science has landed on a place where two Chevys collide and make a Mercedes. And then I read that article, and I'm like, I wasn't wrong. <laughs> That's what they believe. Now, I'm not trying to make fun of scientists or, or science. I don't think we have anything to fear from science as Christ followers. Because when science makes discoveries, they go, look what we discovered, and we go, yeah, God already knew that. They are in the process of discovering what God built into his creation. And they haven't dis there's more they haven't discovered than they have discovered. Think about medical breakthroughs and DNA and all that stuff. They're just figuring out what's going on. I, I say all that to say this. When you read their Bible, there is nothing in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 that suggests creation was anything more than six days of divine genius. I thought I'd let that hang out there. And I say it for this reason. An attack on those six days is an attack on the glory of the Creator. It's not just science debating things. We are taking what God has revealed for us. He hasn't revealed everything. These guys don't know everything. They didn't tell me where the rocks came from that ran into each other. They got issues still. But God has told us everything we need to know to admire His greatness from what He has made. And when you start to tinker with that, you're not just tinkering with some Christian scientist theory about how old earth is. You are messing with the glory of the Creator. And I think we need to be very, very careful. Can I prove it to you? Romans chapter 1, page 939. You probably can see why I had no shot at getting to Judges and Ruth today, right? When I got here, you guys, I, I just started thinking, this is so important. Because once you jettison a creator, think about what else you jettisoned with your creator. You jettisoned ethics, right? You, you, you jettisoned purpose. You, you jettisoned uh, your own significance, because you became a glob of 
random accident. Well, Romans 1 describes that. Let's just read verse 20. So God has shown them in verse 19, His, that is God's invisible attributes, and now he names them, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, perceived ever since the creation in the world in the things that have been made. That's ESV. Can I read New American Standard for a moment? That they are perceived being understood through what has been made. What the, I believe the Bible's telling us here is you can understand a creator by observing the creation. When you look at the genius of everything around you, you draw a conclusion, and the conclusion is this. This was an eternally powerful and divine being who did this. Now you follow on through, let's go down to verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things, Mother Earth. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed how long? Forever. Do you see why I suggest that when you start messing with the divine creator, you're messing with the glory of the one who made you? And you are very lucky he does not take that personally, immediately. <clears throat> now, um, how y'all doing? I'm dying up here, but I'm trying hard for you. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> Uh, this is page um, 1,000 and I think it's 7. I can't read my own writing. It's close. In verse 1 of Hebrews 11, it says, the Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation, They believed in things they couldn't see. Watch verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that were visible. Oh. Creation didn't happen by things colliding into each other. Things that are seen did not make this. We understand the dynamic of a creator, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa. Now listen, if God is all that he says he is, right? If if Genesis is right about who God is, and he is this all-powerful, all-caring, 
then why are things such a mess? And this is the criticism that he has allowed his creation to take up with him by saying, I think I'll eat the fruit in the garden. I think I'll do whatever I darn well please. I think I'll ignore you and live the way I want to. Thank you very much. And he allows that. Dear friend, he'll allow you to shake your fist at him and say, I don't even think you exist. For if you existed, I would not be going through this lousy life. Right? Job chapter 39, or 38. This is on page... Don't have it written down. Somebody tell me what page Job 38's on. Jennifer, you're my Job, my yeller outer person. 443, thank you. <clears throat> if you know the story of Job, Job was a righteous man. All kinds of awful things happened to the righteous man. His three friends show up and say, I don't think you are who you claim to be. And throughout the whole book, they banter back and forth. And finally, Job gets bitter. And he shakes his fist at God and said, I followed you, and all I've got for following you is disease and death and heartache and financial ruin. You're a crummy God. God's honor and glory are on trial. And in Job 38... The Lord answers Job out of a whirlwind. And when he answers Job out of a whirlwind to prove that he is magnificent and great, guess what he uses as evidence? Where were you when I made? Where were you when I made? Where were you when I made? I won't, we don't have time to read all three chapters. Let me just go through the list. Job 38, 4, the Lord laid the foundation of the earth. Job 38, 8, the Lord made the, crowd, the clouds and put boundaries on the oceans. Verse 12, he controlled the morning and dispersed light. Verse 19, he controlled darkness. Verse 22, he's in control of the weather. And that's listed, snow, hail, wind, rain, dew, ice, all the way through verse um, 30. <clears throat> Sounds like he's involved. Doesn't it? Verses 31 to 33, he controls animal life. And then in chapter 39, he puts on display things he knows that Job has no knowledge of. Animal birth, how does that happen? Ladies, wouldn't you like to know how they do that out in the middle of the... How do they squirt those little critters out there and get up and run away? Don't they need epidurals? What is happening? Where were you when I taught animals how to give birth? He then lists the animals that he cared for. Donkeys, oxen ostriches ostriches really in verses 13 to 18 of chapter 39 ostriches horses hawks 
In chapter 40, I think it's dinosaurs. Verses 15 to 41. But the real point here is this. When we take up offense at how our life stinks and we shake our fist at God, he points to the greatness of his creation as proof that he is majestic. And when you start taking swipes at that and start diminishing that, I think you're after something that you need to be very careful of. Isaiah chapter 40, I don't have that page number either, Jennifer, help me. I know where it is, it's right after Isaiah 39. 601, or 600, close enough. Isaiah 40, the whole nation of Israel has rebelled against their God. They have put him on trial because he is not behaving well and they're, 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 they're in captivity. They're not happy. We thought we were following the great God and it turns out he's a pretty lousy God. And uh, in verse 8, he says to them, Go up on the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Say to the cities, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules him. He will tend to his flock and he will go on. In verse 18, he says, to whom will you liken me? Are you kidding me? In verse 12, what does he give as defense for being this great God? He measured the waters in the hollows of his hands. He marked off the heavens. He enclosed the dust of the earth. He weighs the mountains. Can you name someone else who can weigh a mountain? Hmm? In verse 22, he says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. By the way, there's your Bible evidence. The earth is round. Just thought I'd point that out. He sits above the circle of the earth, and he says, um, You know, the prince is there. They're, yeah, they're kind of small. Verse uh, 25 and 26. To whom will you compare me that you should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number and calls them by name, by greatness of his might, and because of his strong power, not one is missing. Don't tell me God's not involved when he named the stars and not one is missing, that he doesn't want it to be missing. Don't Tell me he is an absent creator. Do you not understand that when you take a swipe at the magnificence of creation, you take a swipe at the glory of the creator? Verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Sounds like he was involved to me. I don't think he interjected himself ever so often to give a course correction. He set the boundaries. We are part of that magnificent creation 
of his. And I didn't even get to Genesis 11, did I? I'm so exhausted. This glory of God is under assault. And it has been, I shared with you in Genesis chapter 3, the introduction of evil. Adam and Eve, you'll now know good and evil. What have they known since before that moment? They've only known what God said was what? It's good. He didn't say it the way Jim Carrey said it. He didn't, he didn't say, it's good. He said, it's amazing. It's very good. That's all they've known. The serpent introduces evil into their lives. I would suggest to you God already knew about evil. It is one of the perplexing problems that he has not revealed to us. Where did it come from? Here's what I conclude. You don't need to know the answer to that to know him. You know that it's there. And if you had needed to know that, he would have told you. Regardless, the introduction of evil in Genesis chapter 3 is everywhere. That saturates in chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw the wickedness of man is great on the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So he floods them. They don't think about him at all. The continuation of evil after the flood raises its head again in Genesis chapter 11, where in Genesis chapter 11, humanity with oneness rises up together in verse 4 and says, let's build ourselves a city with its tops to heaven to make a name for ourselves. This is the creation's response to its creator. We don't like you. We don't believe you. We don't trust you. Therefore, we will do whatever we want. And what we want is to elevate us. God has to confuse their languages because they'll never seek him again if he does not. And so, each time... The clarity of Romans chapter 1 helps us understand the plight that we're in now. The greatness of the Creator is revealed for everyone to see, and everyone rebels against that. He therefore turns them over to greater sinful practices, and away it goes. But instead of rebelling, there's another potential response. If you see God as creator, you could acknowledge him. If you see God as ruler, you could submit to him. If you see God as judge, you could fear him. If you see God as director, you could follow him. You see, these earliest pages present to us the magnificent, glorious creator of all things, who invites us as his creation to acknowledge him, submit to him, fear him, and follow him. It is a beautiful picture of what it means to experience 
the salvation and mercy of the Creator. And do you know that when that happens, the glory that he had in that perfection of creation is experienced in microcosm in every single one of our lives. Ephesians chapter 1, let me read it to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, according to the purpose of his will. Are you ready? To the praise of his glorious grace. Do you see, salvation restores the rightful glory that was his from the very beginning. You drop down to verse 12, same chapter. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It is in the salvation offered in the person of Christ that you can return to the glorious praise of the creator of all things. You can stop shaking your fist and say, you're a crummy God. And instead, you can throw your hands up and say, Lord, if it be your will. Hmm? Dear friends, Stop kicking against what God is showing you. Acknowledge Him, submit to Him, fear Him, follow Him, and you will be restored to glorifying Him. And you'll never regret it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I, 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 I know right now that serpent-inspired enemy of yours is snatching the words out of people's hearts, and, and, and they weren't worried about lunch and, 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 and crazy stuff that was said that they found offensive, and I just pray for them, Father, that right now you could settle their hearts and that they could chase after you the almighty, glorious creator. You're amazing. You're absolutely amazing. And for you to extend mercy to us when we deserve nothing but your judgment and curses, we can't help but bow and say thank you. And I pray for anyone here, Lord, who doesn't have the peace of forgiveness in their soul, that they would plead with you right now and reach out by faith and find you to be the faithful recreator of their hearts. I beg you to do that. Thanks for hearing this prayer. And Father, you are an awesome God. Amen.